I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Do you mind giving a big round of applause for our author here? Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. So welcome to Pills and Community Books. We are here tonight with the author of this book that's in my hot little hand that you can't see because this is a radio show. It is called Slaughterhouse. Dominic Pasiga. Pasiga, we can say it in Polish too. What is it in Polish? Patsiga. Patsiga. I like it better in Polish. Okay. He wrote this very, very interesting book about the Union Stockyards. For those of you that don't know, the Union Stockyards were based in Back of the Yards, which is uh, just slightly to the south of us. Uh, I happen to live in Bridgeport, which is right on the uh, border of this. So it's kind of Bridgeport, Canaryville, Back of the Yards. Um, this book is from the University of Chicago Press. And today we're going to be talking about the um, impact that Union Stockyards had not only on Chicago, but on modern business as we know it, and the union movement. Uh, these are all grounds that, that Dominic covers in his book. So I'd like to start off, Dominic, uh, by asking you kind of an obvious question. How did you get interested in writing about this subject in the first place? Well, I worked for the Union Stockyard and Transit Company uh, when I was in college. Mm-hmm. So I actually worked there for, from 1969 to 1971. Uh, I started as a livestock handler, and then later on I was a security guard. Mm-hmm. And it's always been part of my life. My mother uh, worked in uh, packing houses. Uh, my grandparents all worked in packing houses. Uh, so my father stayed away from it as much as he could. Uh, but I grew up right there at 47th in Ashland, 46th in Wood Street. And uh, it was always part of my life. And so uh, I've been writing Chicago history for a long time. And I just decided it was time to do this book. That's great. I want to bring in my two other co-hosts, Jeremy Kitchen. Welcome, as always. Good evening. Michael Sack, welcome as always. Thank you. Uh, the three of us uh, have a policy of actually reading these books, and uh, we have copious notes on the books. Uh, I would like to start out with, with one question that was not obvious to me until, in fact, I read this book. And I know we're going to talk about a, a great deal of things, but one of the things that really surprised me in reading this book was in your telling, um, the unions that first started out trying to represent workers who... Uh, exist under very horrible conditions at the stockyards. And, of course, this was made famous in a very uh, well-known muckraking book, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, that brought a lot of this to the forefront. In your telling, the unions, uh, while they gained a foothold there, uh, often failed in their uh, attempts. And that kind of goes counter to the stories that were kind of often told. So I wondered if you could just start there a little bit with that kind of bit of labor history. Well, you know, the first strike in the stockyard was 1869, so it was just four years after it opened. Uh, and if, but that was sort of a wildcat strike. Uh, there weren't or, or an organized movement at the time. The first really organized movement was 1886. There had been an 1877 railroad strike, but it was met violently, especially in places like Pilsen and uh, in the stockyards. Uh, Halsted Street, of course, was a battleground between police and, and, and striking workers. Uh, and and uh, actually, Packing house workers crossed a bridge uh, with their meat cleavers to come in support of the workers that were on strike here in Pilsen uh, and were shot down. Uh, but in 1886, you had the Knights of Labor, and that was the first real, real union uh, national organization uh, to uh, organize the yards. But yeah, uh, it they, that union, that strike failed. That was part of the Haymarket uh, movement, the eight-hour movement. Uh, that strike failed after m- many weeks. Uh, later on, you had the uh, amalgamated meat cutters coming in at the turn of the century, and there was a strike in 1904 that was very bitter. Uh, oh, and of course, you had the Pullman strike in between, where stockyard workers actually went on strike because a lot of, you know, George Pullman didn't just make the sleeper cars, or, you know, he made all kinds of cars, including cattle cars. 
and refrigerated uh, cars uh, for taking meat to other places. Uh, and the yards uh, just to the south, uh, the, the, all the railroad yards to the south of the stockyards uh, in what was Inglewood today, uh, where many of these uh, trains were located in these uh, rail cars. And uh, people went over to what they called the panhandle and they burnt them down. Uh, so then in 1904, you have the strike uh, uh, that, that's broken. Then in 1921-22, there's another strike that's broken. It's not until the 1930s when the CIO comes in that you get permanent organization in the, in the stockyards. And then, of course, within 20 years, most of the meatpackers leave the city. Most of the big meatpackers uh, leave the city. And they move to non-union states to, for a large part. Do you mind if we, uh, we back up a little, sure. little bit and talk about... Um what exactly went on in that square mile? Like what the stockyards were? Because oh. before I, I read the book, really, I, I thought it was one large entity, one business. And, oh you know, no, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, but could you explain a little bit about Packingtown and the Union Stockyard and some of the ownership involved in that? Sure, sure. Uh, the original stockyard ran from 39th Street to 47th Street, from Halsted to Racine. That's the stockyards. To the west of that was what we called Packingtown. That's where the major meat packers came. They originally were in Bridgeport. They were along the river here on the other side that, of the that river. That wasn't Chicago, actually. It, no, it was Town right? of Lake at the time. Yeah. yeah, it was a suburb until 1889 when it joined the city. Uh, but they called themselves the Chicago Union Stockyards. And when the stockyard opened, it opened on Christmas Day, 1865. What better way to celebrate Christ's birthday than to <laughs> open a stockyard? You've I, killed me, yes. Yeah, right. I'm totally in agreement. So there you go. Uh, so they opened the stockyard on Christmas Day, 1865. Uh, and, it, and the Packers were originally along the south branch of the river in, in the Bridgeport uh, side. Um, they then slowly in the 1870s, the major packers that were in Chicago at the time began to move just to the west because uh, the city of Chicago had a ban on moving livestock on the street between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Well, that's when you kill animals. So uh, what you had, uh, if they moved out of the city into town of Lake, they could do whatever they wanted. And that was true with pollution laws, too, as well. Uh, so... The stockyards went up to Racine, race, and in the uh, from Racine to Ashland was mostly Packingtown, and Packingtown overflowed a little bit beyond. And the Wilsons, the Wilson plant went from Anna Ashland in forty second to almost Damon, and then you had small meat packers in the in the uh, south part of uh, of Bridgeport, and also over in uh, Canaryville. So there were a lot of little meat packers. Uh, at its at its peak in eighteen well the, the peak is in in the early nineteen twenties but in eighteen ninety a book uh, told about the fact that one out of every four Chicagoans was dependent somehow on the meatpacking industry. So so basically just to get a simplified picture in my mm -hmm. head, cattle, hogs, sheep from all over the country and horses don't forget and horses, horses yeah. would be shipped they would be held on the eastern half of the square mm -hmm. mile in the stockyards and right. then buyers would come from right. Packingtown buy up the animals they would be they would get slaughtered right. on the west side and then packed out and shipped and shipped uh, yeah so there were lots of different little firms there was uh, armor and swift and wilson these yeah. big big meat packers but there was miller and hart uh and hately and, and very agar and so forth which were smaller meat packers they were known as yeah. the big six correct right yeah the big six and you had but i had a lot of smaller independent packers no smaller independent packers kept the stockyards going uh, throughout the 60s and uh, into the early 1970s. Yeah. But this was a this was a difference. Like even setting up the Union Stockyards was a, a concentration 
of food production that hadn't really been seen before. Isn't that correct? Right. Yeah. And in fact, in Chicago, there were probably a half dozen small stockyards before 1865. And the reason they called it the Union Stockyards was they were uniting all these little small stockyards. The most important one was uh, over in what today we'd call Bronzeville. Uh, that was uh, where uh, the um, uh, Michael Reese Hospital was located. That was the Sherman Stockyard. It was the first one to really be connected with the railroad. The railroad changed the industry. Uh, the first stockyard in Chicago was at Ogden and Ashland. It was called the Bull's Head, and that operated until 1865. Uh, once Is there they were still a tannery over there. Um, I'm not sure. Yes, it's yeah. at yeah. Holston and Ashland, though. That's the Har- the Harveen t- uh, tannery. They make okay. wallets now. Right. Quite high-quality wallets. Uh, actually, there's still a few tanneries on the north branch of the river, yes. too, yeah. uh, near uh, Goose Island, That's et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. can still smell them, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really blew my mind about the book is the tourist industry that the, oh, yeah. that the stockyards brought. We had, uh, there was a racetrack, horse mm-hmm. racetrack, um, a baseball, uh, a baseball team in I didn't know yeah, the, the Cubs yeah the, the White Cubs started there. Yeah. became the Cubs, which I did not know. I'm a huge White Sox fan, and um, well, they were the Black Sox back then. Though. Yeah, so. but that was I, I had no idea. But they, people would could you tell us a little bit? People would come from all over the world to watch animals get butchered. Yeah, by the turn of the century, by the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, 500,000 people a year were were going through the stockyards to see the process, and you have to understand why. This was the modern. This was the shock, right? Everybody, most people grew up or were a generation removed from farms. So, you know, you knew grandma picked your favorite chicken and and uh, you had soup. Uh, or grandpa, you know, took a hog, pulled him up in a tree, slaughtered him, and, and you know, everybody knew how to do this stuff. But it took a long time. In 1890, it took a uh, skilled butcher and his assistant about eight to ten hours to... Uh, to dress a beef, that is to cut up a steer. Okay, at Chicago it took 34 minutes. So this was the modern. This was shocking to people, and people came on. And, and there were still people in Chicago as late as the 1950s. Uh, third and fourth graders in public schools were taken on tours to see the hogs get stuck, <laughs> and they still talk about it. You know, I mean, I have friends who say, "Oh my God, I'll never forget when the blood shot out." Your you childhood know. trauma. Yeah. Now I lived right by the stockyard, so I never went there because I knew what was going on, and there was no reason for me to see this. <laughs> and the first time I saw a slaughter, really, because I worked for the stockyard company, but we didn't slaughter; we sold animals. Uh, so I never saw a slaughter, but I went to Chipetti. Uh, on Halston in 38, which is now closed, unfortunately, uh, and, uh, and saw a lamb slaughter. And uh, I walked in there, uh, Franco Cipetti, who was a, a great guy, invited me, and he says, well, I won't take you through it. My uncle will take, t- take you through it. So uh, Dennis Cipetti took me through it, and, uh, you know, I, I felt a little queasy about it. I thought, oh, well, you know, you know <laughs> lambs, you know. And, uh, and then, like, in six seconds, it was just a job. It was just, it was moving so fast. It was just a job, you know. Uh, it was really interesting. The other thing was interesting, and I, and I, and I talk a little bit about this in the, film, in the uh, book, um, is the racial and ethnic turnovers in the meatpacking plants. When I was a kid, uh, uh, 80% of the packing house workers were African-American. And I remember the first time I went in with, the, with to Chipetti's meatpacking plant, the one on, uh, that was on Emerald in 39th, uh, everybody was from Michiquan, you know. And I says, wow, well, what happened to all the black people? He says, well, do you want to stand in blood on your ankles all day? They quit. They moved on to other jobs. 
new immigrants come in. The big new immigrant group for meatpacking in, in the Midwest today are Hmong and Vietnamese. Yeah. Many meatpacking plants are, are basically uh, uh, operated by Hmong and Vietnamese. So every new immigrant group, and the Poles came in, and you know, in the 1880s they broke a, a strike. The, the Lithuanians came in, the blacks came in, Mex you know, everybody's breaking a strike one way or the other, and uh, then joined the union, you know, afterwards. So it's it's, it's this changeup. There are 30, <coughs> excuse me, in the four neighborhoods surrounding the stockyards, back of the yards to the southwest, um, um, uh, Canaryville to the east. Uh, Bridgeport to the northeast and McKinley Park to the northwest. There are 30. Originally, there were most most of the many of them are gone now. 36 Roman Catholic churches, because it, every ethnic group that came to work in the stockyards created their own parish. There were uh, a bunch of Irish parishes, some German parishes. Look, you go down 31st Street. There was a big German Catholic church and one, one and then German Lutheran church, sort of staring at each other. Uh, and and uh, you know, and, and Germans came in three flavors, you know, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. So there were very syn various synagogues that were located in the area as well. Much of that is you know gone now, uh, but the, you can talk about the, it when you in the classroom. I use it to talk about the diversity of Chicago and the diversity of the workforce and how people, you know, are pulled out of their rural backgrounds and then just pushed into this environment. And of course, African-Americans come in big numbers at, with the Great Migration. One of the things that I learned when I moved to the South Side is people that have been in the neighborhoods their whole lives identify by their parish, you know. Mm. Um, we know a lot of people in Bridgeport, mm -hmm. the Nativity Parish. Or, sure. And uh, I, I never, I'd never known that before. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, the disassembly line. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the malcontent of the show, and um, I was very interested because in Mike and I were talking while we were reading the book about. I was like, like, did Henry Ford see this? Because you know, it reminds me of the assembly line. Obviously, they're not being assembled; they're being disassembled. And I also we have to talk about the Hereford wheel because <laughs> that was one of the things that I I saw a picture of when. Um, in various times in my right. Chicago historical searches, and um, they called it the squeal wheel. And if, if you want to describe it, I, I, I think it's worth talking about because it's it's pretty bonkers. Well, you know, uh, first of all, when the slaughtering process took place in the 19th and early part of the 20th century, it was not propelled by electricity. So the the, the lines were gravity. So livestock cattle, hogs, and sheep were driven to the very tops of the packing houses, and some of those packing houses were five to eight stories tall, and they would have ramps going up that they would drive them onto the top where they would be rested on the, on the, on the roofs. And then for the hog slaughter, they would take in about a dozen hogs at a time into the kill floor, and there would be a guy called a shackler. And most immigrant groups were introduced as two, two ways, shacklers or squeegee men. The shackler had to grab the hot hog by the hind leg, uh, shackled his hind leg, and in the Hereford wheel, lifted the hog up into the air. Now, hogs are very smart. Cattle are, you know, really not there. They just sort of look at you, mm, you know. Uh, but hogs, hogs, they know what's going on. It's like they give out this squeal of the of the universe, uh, and uh, and just shoot out that like that, you know. So this this squeal goes out, and they scream. It's the loudest kill floor, uh, and they go up on the Hereford wheel. They're lifted up about oh. Uh, five or six feet up into the air, and then and they're attached to a, a pole, and the pole's on an angle, and it, they would slide to the next man who was the sticker, and the sticker dispatched the hog. 
and then went into the boiling pits and then the remo hair removal and dinner. They passed about an army of about 120 to 150 men and women uh, before they ended up in the cooler. The stickler job sounded like the worst job ever. And, but it was also one of the best paid because they kept the pace. The, the, you know, the, the, if he could stick fast, he kept the pace going for the whole line. If he dropped the ball, then the line had to stop. And uh, that meant you were going to lose money. We should talk about the, the vast volume. I mean, I don't think we've really discussed that. This, <clears throat> this, this went from a few hundred animals a day for a small packing house mm -hmm. to tens of thousands yeah. uh, in a day. And I don't think it's hard to wrap your mind around it, even if you've driven by the Union Stockyards. It's still a very big place mm -hmm. in Chicago uh, in terms of its physical footprint. But even reading the book, it, it, I was struggling to grasp the numbers because the, the the numbers of animals that were moving through the stockyards is is truly astonishing, and it, it does kind of show you the growth of the United States, mm -hmm. as well as the growth of the um, industrial packing of all foods. Because the stockyards didn't just do meat, as we'll discuss right. later on, they did other things as well. But I wondered if you could give the audience some kind of idea of. The volume, because it, it really is kind of tremendous. Yeah, well, uh, you know, at the, at the very beginning in 1865, it was a very slow start that in January of 1866. It was a very slow start, but then it picked up very quickly, and it became the leading market in the country uh, and in the world, in fact. At its peak in the 1920s, in two years alone, 18 million head of livestock were unloaded at the Union Stockyards. Between 1893 and 1933, there were never fewer than 13 million head a year. Uh, the Tribune called it organized chaos. Uh, you know, if you, I, uh, when I worked there, the first thing you do is you walk into the pens, and you, all the pens look alike. And you say, how am I going to find my way around this maze, right? But it's set up, it was set up by uh, Octavius, Octavius Chanute, uh, who was originally, you know, one of the Wright brothers. He helped the Wright brothers build airplanes, but he was originally a railroad designer, a railroad and yard designer. He was an engineer. He set it up so it's just like Chicago. If you know the number, if you know where 1105 West 18th Street is, you can go there because you just count it off, right? Uh, and it's the same thing in the stockyards. It would be uh, Block D, uh, pen 27, and so forth and so on. So they all had an address. Each pen had an address. It, it, you know, what, what really struck me, I, I think about 18 million head of livestock coming in. You're a farmer from Idaho, you know, or Iowa or whatever, and uh, you're bringing in 25 head of cattle. You want to be paid for your 25 head of cattle, not Farmer Smith from Wisconsin's 25 head of cattle. So each head of livestock, including horses, sheep, cattle, and hogs, had a piece of paper on them. So this is before computers. So that, you know, you got paid for your livestock. Uh, and farmers didn't trust Chicagoans. You know, we always get our 10%, as you know. Uh, Chicago always gets its 10%, no matter what happens. So they didn't really trust Chicago. And Chicago, by the way, will get 20 if you let him. You know, uh, so it's, it's uh, farmers were always skeptical. They would come and they'd stay at the transit house, which later became the stockyard inn, uh, and, and, and go to the market with their animals. They wanted to make sure they had their animals. To, and a check would be given. So, that, so the animals are purchased they're, by, let's say, armor. They're driven to a scale. The scale uh, uh, could do, I think, 25 cattle at a time, maybe 100 hogs at a time. Um, and they are given a, uh, 
a check right there. A check is just issued right at the scale so that, you know, they felt secure. Uh, it was very, you know, there's uh, still a building there, uh, not to get too much off the topic, but there's still a building there that looks like Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And that's the old Livestock National Bank building. And the reason it looks like Independence Hall, because the stockyard company said, if you shipped your livestock to Chicago, you kept your independence as a farmer. So that was an old, uh, an old advertising gimmick right from the very beginning. But the massive number of people, uh, so for instance, um, Armour would kill six to 8,000 hogs a day. Swift would kill six to 8,000 hogs a day. Uh, about 2,500 to 3,000 cattle a day. Uh, the cattle process is, 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 is much bulkier and larger, of course. Um, and uh, it, it was an amazing market. Uh, nothing was done. I, I said a piece of paper was ever on every animal. That's true. But no, no contracts were signed. So if I was a buyer for Swift and Company and I came into a pen and I said, I want to buy these animals, we'd settle on a price and I'd take my whip and I'd just drop the whip. That meant that I, I agreed to pay for them. And my word was supposed to be good. The you know, Chicago Livestock Exchange maintained it, uh, and if it didn't, then I was kicked out of the stockyards if I screwed up. You know, so there was a, a tremendous amount of a tremendous attempt to make farmers feel secure, bring their cattle in, bring their hogs, and bring their sheep in, and uh, even till the end, it, the last year I was there, I think we had three quarters of a million cattle come in. Uh, for the, it was just a cattle market at the at, in the last year. I tell you, though, I, I don't know how many of you have ever been around hogs, but if you've ever been in a building, the biggest run of hogs in one day at the Union Stockyards was 120,000 hogs in one day. That's a lot of hogs. That's a lot of hogs. It's a lot of pork. Uh, yeah. And 120,000 hogs in one day, and they were all sold, and they were dispatched. Yeah. What there were they a, doing with it? Was it a lot of ham? Was it Easter time or something? It, 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 I'm... I've, forget what time of the year it was, but it was an awful lot of hogs. And, you know, the other thing is, don't forget that it was also a shipping market. So in the beginning, most of the livestock were shipped east. Once refrigeration took place and refrigerated cars were created in the 1870s, early 1880s, then uh, chilled beef was and chilled pork were sent east. Uh, uh, and that's another story. But uh, even at at the at, at its height, one third of all the animals were shipped to an eastern market for the most part to be slaughtered, because in the kosher kill, where there are large Jewish populations in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, the kosher kill you have to eat the meat within a certain period of hours after the slaughter, and if you don't, then it's not kosher. And so they would be even we were shipping to kosher kills in Pennsylvania and in New York as as late as the 1970s. And there were some experiments with ways to keep the the meat chilled. Oh, I, yes. There was a, one, I believe, they were leaving the doors open on the rail cars right. in the wintertime, right. as you described in your book. And then right. uh, there was a primitive version of air conditioning in the offices with cool water. Right. The, the Swift & Company general offices, which were built in 1906, was the first building in Chicago to be air conditioned. So what they would do is they would, they would flow cold water and have fans blowing uh, in the air across uh, somehow. I'm not sure how it was done, but well, like uh, a yeah. primitive swamp cooler kind of. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. it's like the yeah. thing at Sox Park. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. called yeah. losing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Well, no, it's not very nice. Now. Well, I'm a Sox yeah. fan, but this year it's killing me. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's a rebuild. It's, it's a rebuild. Let's, yeah. let's get back on topic. Let's okay. talk about chilled beef here. Let's not talk about. I'm starting to shake now. Let's yeah. not talk about. Well, I mean, you know, we, got, we got some pro. Oh. We have a really <laughs> bad habit of getting off topic. I did want to <laughs> read a description of the smell of the stockyard. This is from Grand Duke Boris. Uh, he was a cousin of the of a Russian czar or the Russian czar, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said in 1902. The combined smells seem to focus in a crescendo of coagulated putridity. And uh, Kipling was there, too, and he said they are, in describing the hogs, I, I love this, he says, they are so excessively alive, these pigs, and then they were so excessively dead. And the man in the dripping, clammy, hot passage did not seem to care. And... Sarah Bernhardt was there. There was many, many uh, the German socialist Max Weber, and they also had tourist brochures. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, trading cards, mm-hmm. things yeah. like that. They have trading cards. Yeah. Oh yeah, so yeah. I could get my favorite sticker on a card, basically. Is what you're saying? Well, you sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had uh, these uh, stereo optic cards, uh, you know, and uh, you can. And by the way, if you're on eBay. Uh, punch in Union Stockyard Chicago, and all this stuff shows up. I was going to ask yeah. you because many of the photos in the book are from Dominic's collection, and right. I was going to ask you where, so now I know. Yeah. So, for instance, there's no, uh, uh, for those of you out there who worry about copyright, there's no copyright on anything before 1923. So, these stereo optic cards are all before 1923. So, you can just reproduce the pictures, and they come out crystal clear. Uh, they're really of high quality. <clears throat> Um, but on the other hand, if you are at a museum and they have the same picture, they charge a lot of money. But eBay, I can get them for seven bucks. Don't tell anybody. Okay. I think you've just blown your cover. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you have to get out of town. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting uh, because to get back to all these people coming in, uh, you have these little tourist books, and I've bought several of them on eBay once again, uh, and uh, uh, they are uh, uh, just just uh, illustrated uh, drawings of what you're going to see. They explain everything. Originally, when people came in, now let me say this. The first guidebook to the stockyards appeared before the stockyard opened. It was an uh, entrepreneurial uh, journalist who wrote a book, uh, wrote a guide to the stockyards, uh, he came down watching him build it, and he did it. Uh, it's it sold out several editions, um, and uh, uh, it 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 was be- because tourists came even before it was opened, just to see this huge sea of pens, which was just a, an amazing. Sea. They could unload over five hundred railroad cars at a time. Five hundred railroad cars when it opened. By the time it you know, was at its peak, there were probably a 1,000 railroad cars at a time. And uh, a railroad car could hold about 200 hogs or 200 sheep and, or about 25 head of cattle in each railroad car. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, wooden cars. Uh, railroads don't do this anymore. Uh, they're basically out of business, I believe. I mean, everything's done by truck now. But uh, we had, uh, if I can tell a personal story. Absolutely. We, we, we had 2,500 cattle come in from uh, the Dakotas uh, for a show, and um, they were Black Angus, and we were unloading them, uh, and they pulled me in from uh, the truck dock to help unload on the trains. And we were taken down in bunches of 25 each. Well, at one point, I came back to get my load of 25, and they said, hey, kid, come here. You know, I was 20 years old, uh, a little trimmer than I am now. Yeah, hard to believe. Um, and uh, go in and get it. Go and get what? 
there was a black Angus in the back. Uh, and I says, okay. And I could hardly see it because it was dark, but I could hear it. And he says, if you get in trouble, there's a chin-up bar above the door. Grab the chin-up bar, pull yourself up, and let him go out from underneath you. Now, in high school, <laughs> I was the guy who could never do the chin-up, you know? And Coach be yelling at me, and I could never do a chin-up because I was sort of a that kind of guy, right? I go in there, and I... And this steer, I see, I see uh, uh, dust going up in the air, and I, and I know, oh my God, here's 1,200 pounds of angry meat coming right at me. <laughs> and he charges me, and I grab that chin-up bar, and with one arm, I lift myself. <laughs> so the next time you hear a story about some little old lady lifting up a car so a baby can get out, believe it. <laughs> Adrenaline can do an awful lot. I was, whoa, I, said, I was up there, and I said, oh, coach, come on, you got to see this, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, we have to take a quick break, but we're going to be back from Pilsen Community Books. We're talking with Dominic Pasiga, the author of Slaughterhouse, and you're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back after these short messages. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome everybody back. We are discussing this book, Slaughterhouse, Chicago's Union Stockyard and the World It Made, with our author, Dominic Pasiga. Please give a warm... Pels and Community Books, welcome to Dominic. Thank you. So at the back of last hour, we were talking about killing things, refrigerated train cars, but we want to go in a little bit of a different direction to start this particular half hour. Uh, during the break, uh, Jeremy and Mike and Dominic and I were talking about how the stockyards really had an impact on the modern world. And I think Jeremy brought up a really good point about the stockyards being, in a sense, birthplace of modern capitalism in a weird way. Right, Jeremy? Yeah. Well, what Dominic talks about, he says, modern free market capitalism dependent on a vast cheap labor supply emerges the dominant system after the Civil War, which sounds familiar to all of us. Um, and the Union Stockyards symbolize this new corporate America as it emerged out of the crisis of battle. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit because, you know, the the Packers were, were, were union busters. You mm -hmm. know, there was... There was um, there was no interest in, in unionizing with the, the higher ups. And, you know, they had this, we talked about the new immigrant groups would do the terrible jobs. And, um, you know, it's, it's very similar to what we have today. In fact, the, the meatpacking industry is, you can, we were talking about, you know, Asian populations that are doing it now. And you read, you know, about the wages and the danger and things like that. And it's almost like it's, it hasn't really changed all that much. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, this, this was a cutting-edge industry in the 19th century. Uh, and while it's no longer considered cutting-edge, I mean, now in this digital world that we live in, uh, we still all eat. And, uh, and, and we eat, we want food that's cheap and fresh as much as possible, right? And because we want it cheap... Workers get, uh, you know, put in a position where they don't make as much money as they might. Uh, uh, cheap meat means cheap labor, uh, unskilled labor. Look, when my uh, grandparents came from Poland in about 1913 or so, uh, they worked in the slaughterhouses. They were put in the, in the, in the basic jobs, you know. Uh, and uh, my mother also. Uh, and, and now there are new people that have come in to take those basic jobs. You know, I th th we were talking a little, a little earlier about the modern. This was really the modern, the creation of this new capitalist system that had emerged. And especially, uh, capitalism goes back, you know, to the 1450s in northern Italy, but it becomes sort of um, 
uh, perfected uh, in the 19th century in the United States. It becomes very much a, a sort of perfected as an economic and, and political and even a cultural system. I mean, it's, it's a cultural system. You, you know, uh, Americans believe in capitalism equals democracy. It does not necessarily equal democracy. I mean, you know, it's, it's, these are two different words. But uh, you have this kind of culture around these kinds of things. And in Chicago, uh, the, the stockyards, uh, the packing houses in particular, really sort of led this movement. Uh, they transformed advertising. They transformed transportation. They transformed the buying and selling of live animals and the slaughtering of live animals. You know, to the point where today I think most kids think that God created chicken in a plastic container and put it in the jewel. <laughs> um, we are totally removed for the most part. I mean, uh, very few of us have seen a slaughter, right? Or, or go out into the backyard and kill a chicken and bring it in and make soup. Uh, this was an everyday thing in the 19th century. Uh, and this is now, this, this was the industry that changed it in many ways. Also, remember Chicago the great railroad capital of the United States. Without the railroad, there's no Union stockyard. 1865, the stockyard opens. 1869, Chicago connects both coasts at Chicago. So if you want to go from New York to, to Sacramento, California, you have to stop in Chicago, get off, spend the night at the Palmer House, you can shop at Marshall Field. We always get our 10%, right? And then get on the train the next day. And if you want to go the opposite way, you have to stop in Chicago. It's the terminal. It's the terminal for all the railroads. And this was true also for livestock. Actually, for immigrants, there's an interesting story about immigrants. Immigrants were third-class trains. Livestock trains were second-class. So if you're coming in from New York uh, out of Ellis Island and you're coming into Chicago and your cousin you know, is waiting for you at the Union Station, and there's a big run at the stockyards. There's, you know, 30,000 cattle showing up. You're stuck in Pennsylvania till all the cattle trains come in, and you come in 12 hours late because you are a third-class passenger. Human beings are third-class. Livestock are second-class because livestock mean money, and that's uh, what we learn in this. He's not joking. I was actually on a sixth-class train once in the uh, former Soviet bloc, oh. so the, the livestock definitely went before us. I did want to back up, however, to your earlier point and play a little bit of devil's advocate here because the union stockyards also benefited and depressed union depressed excuse me labor wages mm -hmm. as well as costs because of government support. There were a number of times when uh, workers attempted to strike and the federal government stepped in and said that the food supply and the safety of the food supply was much more paramount. Mm -hmm. I would also, again, just to play devil's advocate for a second, with the growing population, America exploded, you know, in mm -hmm. the, between the 19th and 20th century. And there was a real federal program to bring more food to more people, which meant increased production of everything, not just meat. It sure. was a, a general agricultural revolution that other countries tried to match. That depressed prices and that also kept wages artificially low. But wouldn't you... Uh, maybe agree, however, that for the greater society of the United States, the fact that they did have this cheaper supply of food made a tremendous difference to more people overall. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, there's actually reports. Uh, I've just, I'm just working on another book uh, about Polish Chicago, and the talk is that Poles in Chicago didn't eat much meat when they came here. Well, it's because Europeans didn't eat much meat. Uh, but look at how much meat we eat. Some of us eat meat three times a day. I can feel my heart clogging up right now, you know? Uh, meat is cheap. 
and uh, and 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 but on the other hand, we're, we're we grow taller, we grow stronger. Uh, there's there's you know there's uh, up and downside to both of these. I must say about the strike situation, there are three players in every strike situation. There's the workers, there's the management, and there's the government. Okay, every strike situation, and that government is usually the government that interferes the most is local and state government. Federal government came in in a Pullman strike, but local and state government are what really uh, are are the uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, um, um, primary players to tip the balance one way or the other. So, for instance, in the stockyards in the 1930s, the local government, the democratic machine, supported the workers. Why? Because they had just shot down a bunch of workers in the southeast side and uh, at the Memorial Day massacre, and they got a lot of bad press. And so uh, they were referring to Mayor Kelly as Machine Gun Kelly. So Kelly ended up supporting. He sent the police into the stockyards to protect the workers from goons, basically. Uh, so it, it 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 all depends on what side, whose side are you on, which is a, a an old labor song. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. We actually have a, a couple of questions from the audience. We've only got one, actually, but it's from Bill Stamets, the photographer. Am I correct, Bill? Photographer? Right. So Bill asked a really good question that actually dovetails with this. Um, who paid to ship livestock to Chicago in the first place? And did centralizing the meat on this scale put local and regional stockyards out of business? Did Chicago pay more for livestock and sell meat cheaper? Well, you know, what actually happened is the, who pays for the, to ship livestock is the farmer. Uh, he drive you know, so originally livestock are driven on a hoof, and so the hinterland is very small. So if you lived on Archer Avenue, you might have 400 head of cattle go by you with cowboys uh, in the morning uh, to the packing houses in Bridgeport. Once the railroads come in, you have to drive them to the railhead, and then you pay uh, to send them to the stockyards. Um, but I, I, uh, the, the the idea here of uh, um, what was the second part of this was uh, well did centralizing it uh, put, put other local and regional stockers out of business yeah but did they did they sell meat cheaper as a result yeah I mean it did they did put a lot of uh, local uh, stockyards out of business and also a lot of local packers that reversed itself today but uh, it's it's right. more concentrated yeah that's but an more, interesting yeah. point because in 1869 the railroad was modern but right. in 19 19- 20 something the truck right. was the modern and the truck and changes the whole, the whole thing reverse yes it actually yeah. it begins to decentralize because railroads centralize trucks decentralize and when you get the Eisenhower uh, highway system in well you don't need to kill meat in Chicago kill uh, animals in Chicago or or even in Kansas City or Omaha all the big terminal markets are gone now every one of them uh, south st paul uh, etc but it did make meat cheaper because it was done in a much more uh, uh, economic way of effective way of, of you know when you when you it takes about 26 minutes to kill a hog in 1890 in Chicago it takes six to eight hours in you know in a skilled butcher uh, and the same with sheep etc so it, it's moving very rapidly and because it's moving very rapidly you know packers by the way don't make a lot of money on meat they make money on the byproducts and that's one thing we haven't talked about. The byproducts industry was just incredible. Everything but the squeal, right? Everything that's, but the squeal. That's a great place to go to because I believe you said in your book, and I don't remember what chapter it was in, but you mentioned that the meat packers, just by the, the slaughter of the cattle, actually made all the money to break even on the cattle. Mm-hmm. And then it was everything else. That was just yeah. the casing, I think. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry, just the casing. Just so, the casing. Yeah. So you had the hooves, which are made glue. You mm-hmm. had the glands, which could be made for thyroid and other medications. Mm-hmm. You had the hides, of course, which could be made into shoes, purses, wallets, 
That's the tanneries McMahon. we were talking mm-hmm. about Stomach earlier. Pepsin. Correct. Pepsin. Uh, right. You had the casings, which, of course, made sausages. Uh, you actually had little, in, in the hog's ears, oh, there are yeah. little hairs that they would delicately cut out and turn into painter's brushes. Right. Yeah. There were, you could buy, on Halsted Street, you could buy um, uh, um, um, buttons made out of blood. They would take the blood and bake it and sell buttons. That is awesome. It's just a, a, everything. <laughs> Jeremy, you know, I was waiting for it. Everything but the squeal. And, yeah. and, and, and Swift said, and if I could can the squeal, I would. You know. There was a, a, a postcard or uh, in your, uh, and it's, it's two kids, and they have a can, and they've made a little sailboat out of it. And it said, even the children make a toy of the empty can of cooked corned beef. So not only do they use everything, but you can make toys with a can of cooked corned beef. I, um, I don't know how many people today would let their kids play with the sharp edge of a can. Yeah. But, yeah. Get the yeah. spam can and the throw sp- a sail on it. Yeah. There, but, you know, we were, earlier we were talking about sort of trading cards. Uh, right. Uh, they actually made a whole bunch. Of, uh, Libby McNeil and Libby made a whole bunch of these cards, including Shakespearean cards. So you'd have Falstaff. Saying something, and next to him would be a can of Libby McNeil and <laughs> Libby corned beef, you know. And in the bottom, it would say Falstaff had his girt because he ate Libby McNeil and Libby corned beef, you know. And it was just, it's just amazing, I, you know. And and Armour uh, did uh, 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 calendars with uh, uh, pretty girls, you know. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing uh, pornographic, but. Just to, and, and she, disappointing. she, she <laughs> has her, she has standards. her beautiful skin because she eats armor meat, or and washes with armor soap. You know, we were talking about the jungle earlier, mm-hmm. and you mentioned in the book that that was one of the first uh, pieces of literature that had the forward campaign. You know, oh yeah, they yeah. were promoting the book before it even came out. They were promoting the book well before it came out. Yeah. Did you? Did your family read it when it? I read it in high well, school. Well, I guess you guys weren't here yet when it came out. Yeah, no, no. But I read it in high school, of course. And uh, I knew people in the neighborhood who were around when, you know, because I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. So there were still older people around who were probably around when, when uh, Sinclair was here. Uh, there's actually a, a wonderful guy named, Ged, uh, I'm going to hope I say this right, Gedrius Sabaitis. He holds the chair of Lithuanian studies at UIC. Gedrius has a book called The Lithuanian Jungle. He has found the tavern that opens the... the uh, he actually found a physical tavern. It's gone now. It was knocked down, but he knows where it is. We have photographs of it. We actually found a film of it uh, at one point. Uh, and Gedrius uh, has this... Uh, he's, he's working on, uh, on, on more, uh, more stuff about this. He actually traced... There were 67 words or 63 Lithuanian words in the book, and he is a... Um, uh, a language expert, right? A philo- so he was able to find out what part of Lithuania they were from because these words are just particular to that part of Lithuania, you know. Uh, and uh, and even the the bad grammar is particular to that part of Lithuania. So he can actually pin. So he claims to have found the, the gr- one of them. One of them went back and he found the grave. Is he part of the Lithu- Lithuanian Museum over on the southwest side? I don't think he is, but he has a relationship with them. Okay. Yeah. We pass a, a My wife and I live in Brighton Park, and we pass oh, yeah. that a lot. We've yeah. been debating checking that out. The Balzikas Museum. Balzikas, yeah. yeah. That, that whole section was really interesting to me because I thought, I thought the jungle had a, a bigger impact than 
it did in actuality. Well, I mean, it went all the way up to the president, right? But then back down the chain of command when things got. Well, you know, it, one of the reactions to it actually is the creation of the American Meat Institute. Uh, and at one point, the American Meat Institute has a relationship with the University of Chicago. And you can actually get a master's degree in meatpacking at the University of Chicago in the 1920s yeah. if you're the business school. And they publish all kinds of meatpacking manuals. The University of Chicago Press publishes all kinds of meatpacking manuals. And the American Meat Institute building was there until about 10 years ago. It was knocked down for one of their hospitals that have gone up. But it, it was a big sign on the American Meat Institute. Uh, and, and the American Meat Institute was a reaction to the jungle because they you know, were getting all this terrible press. It wasn't so much that Upton Sinclair they were worried about. But the federal government was constantly investigating the meat industry and uh, for, for uh, the creation of trusts and uh, monopoly and, and those kinds of things. And so this was really an attempt to – and so remember earlier I had talked about these little pamphlets that they passed out to visitors. Well, the pamphlets in 1906 don't say anything about sanitary conditions. By 1930, they're saying, look at our laboratories, look how we kill bacteria, look how we make everything so you know, clean, and we've got people in smocks walking around. You know, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see that transition. One truly sketched sketches of 1906 and then look through to the photographs of the 1930s. It's really interesting to see. Yeah. And, of course, most of that, as you mentioned, was, was propaganda. Well, you know, to, and, and to an extent, things were cleaner by 1930. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> it's, well, thank the Lord, yeah. Yeah, like go yeah. up, right? Yeah. But, I mean, the, the central meatpacking, it should be pointed out that what Sinclair was talking about was the horrible conditions of the workers. Mm -hmm. He wasn't necessarily talking about the horrible conditions of the beef. And, right. And, in fact, what the meatpacking industry had done was actually turn a product, as you mentioned earlier, that had to be consumed, I think, in, what, three to four days, to one that could be safely shipped and transported for several weeks, right. which also probably should give you a little pause about industrial beef, if you really think about this. Well, you know, New York meatpackers tried to stop the importation of chilled beef from Chicago. They called it embalmed beef. <laughs> and so they tried. They said, you know, we can't eat this. This is embalmed beef. We kill. In the meatpacking district in Manhattan was a real meatpacking district. Uh, now it's sort of a, 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 a it's hipster. Now. And it's it's now yeah, expensive. Yeah. But uh, uh, so they, there was actually a stockyard in Midtown Manhattan where they unloaded trains with, uh, with cattle from the stockyards and they slaughtered them. Um, so, but but what what Swift did was he opened. Uh, he said, "Well, all right, you don't want to sell my meat. That's fine. I'll open a store and I'll sell it. And if you charge uh, ten cents a pound, I'll charge eight. And if you charge eight, I'll charge six. And if you charge five, I'll charge two. And let's see who goes out of business first. And that's how he conquered the. I mean, Swift and Armour conquered the whole country as far as uh, the meat packing. Well, all the big meat packers did." Yeah. You can see how that ties in with business today. Oh, yeah, yeah sure, absolutely. absolutely. And it was very much more cutthroat. There was no real uh, government super, you know, intervention, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I mean, the progressive era is when, you, and this is when the Sinclair comes in, the progressive era is when you get the Pure Health, you know, Pure Food and Drug Act, you get the Meatpacking Inspection Act, you get uh, the government taking uh, steps to make life safer, yeah. Do we have time to talk about the end? The, yes, we do. The demise? Mm -hmm, we do, absolutely. So it was just a couple of years after you started working there that that uh, they started taking down. Well, they started, I mean, the, the real decline begins actually after 1933. 1933 is the last year they, they draw 13 million animals. Uh, it peaks again during World War II for a little while. 
But then after World War II, you get a very, very quick decline. Uh, Swift kill, uh, stops its hog kill in 1952. And in the fall of 1954, Wilson announces it's closing in six weeks. That's it. 8,000 people laid off. Okay. Uh, then, they have severance packages back then. Yeah, yeah. They got severance packages. They called the CTA. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, what, what effect did that actually have, before we go any further, what did that have on back of the yards? Well, I would assume it was devastating. On the back of the yards, it wasn't so bad, because what had happened after World War II was the back of the yards was a white ethnic community until, you know, the 70s, really. Uh, and uh, those people had gotten what they called clean jobs. Right. Men came back from the war. They didn't want to stick pigs. They wanted to work at places like Western Electric and Cicero or, you know, uh, others in the clearing. Beautiful downtown mm-hmm. Cicero. Beautiful downtown yeah. Cicero. Mm-hmm. Wonderful But uh, the pay was better and uh, it was cleaner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the 80% of the meatpacking workers by the 1950s were African-American or Hispanic. And they, those two communities got hit the hardest. So you want to see what the devastation of the closing of the stockyards? Go to Inglewood. That is the result of the closing of the stockyards. You had a lot of good, solid jobs, four weeks paid vacation, benefits, all that's from Swift and Armour and Wilson. People were buying homes in Inglewood. They were setting themselves up their community. And in the 1950s, it disappeared. So that was is the real problem. In the back of the yards, you had a large and growing Hispanic population, which was dependent on the meatpacking industry, but they were able to make an adjustment in some ways. Today, there's 15,000 people working in the stockyards. 15,000 people in, working in the... It's the best... Industri- it's the most successful industrial park in the city of Chicago. 15,000 people are working there today. At its peak, there were 50,000. So, you know, it's not the same, but, but they are there. They're not the best jobs in the world, but they are jobs. They're actually building over there, too, by, over by where you grew up on oh. uh, 43rd and Ashland. There's a new bunch so, of new stuff going up over in, on the uh, west end of the yeah. Oh, west yeah. end of the yards. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's, it's kind of interesting to see um, because I was talking uh, with the alderman, uh, alderman um, Patrick Daly Thompson, Thompson. Yeah. and I, I asked him, uh, uh, we were talking about the possibility of opening up something out there, and uh, uh, he said, there's no land. you got to do it someplace else because it's all, it's all booked. Come up uh, north on Halstead. There's yeah. plenty of space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know uh, there's one last slaughterhouse in Chicago, uh, Park Packing, 41st and Ashland. They kill about 200 hogs a day. Uh, park packing, and they've been there since the 60s, uh, and that's the last pack. When that packing house goes, uh, we will have lost a tradition in Chicago that goes back to Fort Dearborn. We've been slaughtering animals in Chicago since Fort Dearborn. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, the the I guess the main character of the book is the modern. You, yeah. You use modern in the book not as as an adjective but as a noun. Mm-hmm. Frequently, and it's yeah. not always in the same context. So right, it changes over time. Right, the modern changes over time. For instance, today there are some industries in the stockyards that are on the cutting edge. You got the Testa Produce Company, and you got the plant. Right, I wanted you to yeah. talk about those two. Right. Uh, Testa Produce has the first Leeds certified produce plant in the country. Uh, they do tours. They have the windmill, right? Dave, that's the one with the windmill, which yeah. is sort of the symbol of the modern stockyards. The stone gate is still there for the, for the old stockyard. And if you haven't seen the gate, there's a gate and a fireman's memorial yeah. over there. Oh, uh, the stone gate? Yeah, it's a 43rd and exchange. It's right? exchange in yeah, Peoria. That's a burn exchange in Peoria. Peoria. Yeah. Also, you Sherman the Bull. Is still Sherman the Bull is still looking yeah, down at the street. Yeah, check it out. It's yeah. worth it's worth taking a walk or yeah. drive down there. Yeah, famous architect Daniel Burnham. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, 
and Burnham was married to one of the Packers. He, he was daughters. he was not the Packer. He was it was John Sherman who was general manager of the Stockyards. Yeah, he was yeah. married to his daughter, and in the very Chicago way, he got all the uh, assignments to build buildings in the Stockyards. That's shocking. I can't you believe gotta, it. Yeah. If you, as Mayor Daly would say, if you can't help your own family, who can you true. help? That's you know? true. Uh, but uh, the plant, uh, which I'm involved with, we're building a, a stockyard museum in the plant. Uh, the plant is a food incubator run by John Adel. Uh, he also has a small place in Bridgeport in the, uh, in the Central Manufacturing District, uh, a different kind of business incubator. Yeah, Bubbly Dynamics. Bubbly Dynamics. And That's he's, the maker space? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, yeah, and John's been on the show as well. He's uh, he's on a, the Lumpen Radio. He's a great guy, yeah. Uh, and that's interesting because I think where this wraps up, you know, the stockyards came through an, an incredible cycle from the centralization of everything that kind of birthed, uh, in a sense, not only the modern union movement and, and labor awareness, mm -hmm. but now we're back to a very decentralized environment, which is, you know, what the stockyards was really set up to combat. Mm -hmm. And now today people are getting back to the idea that food should be local and it should be produced and right. all this and all that. I, I just wanted to wrap up by asking, do you, do you think that... Uh, in a weird sense, we've kind of come full circle, uh, and that you know the next cycle may be another giant union stockyard somewhere. Well, I actually, at the last chapter of the book, I say that you know with the locavore movement, uh, it would make sense to have a livestock market in the Chicago area. You have a population here of nine million people in the greater Chicago land area, which is like twice the size of Israel uh, or Lithuania, and uh, and people are talking about locavore and you know eating locally. You go to a restaurant. An upscale restaurant, and you say, "Where did the meat come from?" They tell you to farm. They tell you where it was slaughtered, and so forth and so on. Uh, I think it, uh, it 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 would would make sense to bring it back. There was actually uh, a company talking about doing it on Lake Street. Really? Not too long ago. Yeah. 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 Well, we and and you know, I I I've tried to propose that a couple of times, but it's uh, you know, for Chicagoans, the first thing you do when you talk about a stock is oh, the smell, and the stench was incredible. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, but uh, that fertilizer plant done by I used to live in Canaryville. Well, yeah, that fertilizer stuff. Yeah. It's brutal. That oh. was that fertilizer. You know, when you walk through the stockyards or you walk through the back of the yard, saying you, you get that, that whiff of that smell, people say, "Oh, the stockyards." And it's the stockyards. It's that plant, yeah. which used to be Darling and Company, and Darling and Company was the biggest uh, uh, fertilizer. Uh, I used to give tours uh, in buses. Uh, and uh, when you went down Packers Avenue to about 44th Street, there were huge, huge uh, uh, swimming pools filled with brown liquid. And they were shot up in the air to aerate it. It was turned into fertilizer. You can guess what the brown liquid was. Uh -huh. Coffee, right? Yeah, it was coffee, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Root beer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> I want to remind everybody that we have been talking with Dominic Pia, the author of Chicago's Union Stockyard in the World of Meat. He is the author of Slaughterhouse right here. We'll be back at Pills and Community Books on June 21st talking with Megan Steelstra. For everybody at I-94, my name is Jamie Trecker. That's Jeremy Kitchen. That's Michael Sack. Please give a big round of applause to our author who went through this hour-long gauntlet. Thank you so much. For Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Forest Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the book Slaughterhouse by Dominic Pasiga, out now from the University of Chicago Press. 
This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience at Pilsen Community Books on May 17th and originally aired on May 20th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.